Hi, this is Mark Iskowitz, editor-at-large for MMM, and welcome to the MMM podcast. We're at an interesting point in the vaccine rollout. Today, as we record this, drug makers from Pfizer and Moderna were set to update Congress on the availability of their COVID-19 vaccines, and distribution is really picking up. Pfizer is reportedly prepared to provide a total of 300 million shots to the United States by the end of July and has raised global production expectations for 2021 to at least 2 billion doses. And according to his own prepared remarks, Moderna's president, Stephen Hoag, said the drug maker plans to deliver 100 million doses of its two-dose shot by the end of March and 300 million by the end of July. Somewhat fortuitously, my special guest today is Patrick Bergstedt, Senior Vice President of Commercial Vaccines at Moderna, and we're going to chat about how the commercialization effort is going. Patrick is responsible for establishing the commercial organization and leading the development and execution of the global commercialization of the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine. But before we get to the interview with Patrick, first a couple of housekeeping items, as we always do on this podcast. The MMN Pinnacle Awards, which celebrate those in our industry for their career achievements, are open for nominations. Contact us right away if you'd like to nominate a colleague for that. MMN's 40 Under 40 program, which shines a spotlight on the youth movement in our industry. The uh, list it just went up on our site live this this week, and the virtual award ceremony is coming up March 25th, so you can register for that on our site. The MMM Awards Program, our stalwart awards show now in its 18th year, is open for nominations with the first deadline coming up April 21st. And finally, MMM Transform, Navigating the Next, our spring conference, uh, which is free to register, uh, is coming up May 4 to 6. Okay, now back to the interview with Patrick. Patrick, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Mark, good afternoon. Thank you very much for making the time. It's a privilege to to speak with you and your audience. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. I was also pleased to hear that you're uh, you've been a long long time reader of uh, of the publication. I've been a fan. I arrived in the United States in 1996, and um, trying to uh, become knowledgeable about the United States market. And people put two magazines in front of me, and one of them was Medical Marketing and Media. <laughs> and I've been, <laughs> I've been following that since uh, for many many years. It really helped me through. You know, gets to become familiar, but also stay up to date on topical uh, topical uh, subjects. Wonderful. We, we really appreciate hearing that. Uh, so let's just start off with a question about, you know, drawing in your experience and background. I know, I know you've got a background in infectious diseases, uh, antimicrobial drug resistance. You worked in HIV, antifungal. Uh, you've worked for Sanofi, but you also worked for Merck and you, you headed up their uh, vaccine commercialization efforts as well. So just wondering, you know, how has COVID kind of redefined the business of uh, commercializing vaccines? Mark, when I think about my career, and as you correctly pointed out, you know, most of my experience has been with subpopulations, particularly when it comes to multi-drug resistance. It was usually people in an ICU, um, a select population of people that may have a multi-drug resistant bacterial infection, or even a fungal infection, people that may have had a a, a bone marrow transplant who, who who now need to receive treatment against an infection. And then HIV, while a very large population, it was also a select population that was infected or at risk of HIV infection. What changes with vaccines is that we're dealing with broad populations. And it has been said, and unfortunately it's become also a little bit cliched, that none of us will be protected until we are all protected. And nowhere in the world have we ever experienced something as vast, something as devastating, something that's had such a devastating impact on the economy and on our personal lives 
as COVID-19. So in terms of scale, in terms of impact, I have never, ever experienced anything like this um, when it comes to uh, a healthcare challenge, uh, as well as challenge, but also opportunity for vaccines. Unfortunately, it has also been um, become very politicized because we have countries trying to do the best for their own citizens and protecting their populations. But we have also seen countries and regions like carve out turf in order to try and protect and, and secure as much vaccine as they can for their own populations. And this is something that we've never seen before when it comes to vaccines. Um, so many, many challenges at many different levels um, with COVID-19. The other point I think which is very important is that traditionally there have been about three or four global vaccine manufacturers. None of those historical vaccine manufacturers have developed their own vaccine, which is being deployed today. It's an important point. We have now over a hundred companies trying to develop vaccines to address COVID-19. And many of the leading players, many of the leading vaccines that have been deployed today have come through smaller biotech companies, companies that have disrupted the science, particularly in the field of mRNA. So this has led to a dramatic change into what was the historical vaccine landscape to the new vaccine landscape moving forward. So significant change. And I think that this will forever alter vaccines research, vaccines de de um, development, as well as the deployment of vaccines moving forward. People, citizens are more and more aware of infectious diseases. They're more in, uh, aware of the role of vaccines. And at a time of vaccine hesitancy or lack of confidence in vaccines, I think there is also far greater awareness amongst the average citizen, amongst governments, amongst healthcare professionals about the role that vaccines will play, not only for COVID-19, but for um, other diseases that could potentially be protected through vaccines moving forward. Right. So, so the new uh, vaccine landscape, if you will, is one in which you have more involvement uh, from biotech, um, even in the commercialization area, and you have more of a health-ready consumer for whom their health and wellness has been thrust to the forefront, often out of necessity. Um, and, and we'll get to the vaccine hesitancy point more in, in a bit. I also wanted to ask you, you know, you've, you've worked on both the therapeutics and the vaccine side uh, during your career, and vaccines obviously have their own access issues, but can you tell us how those issues differ from therapeutics and, you know, how does this kind of play out in Moderna's communications campaign for its uh, COVID-19 vaccine? If we think about vaccines for a moment, where there's a very important difference between vaccines and therapeutics is that the healthcare consumer, you or I and our families, we have a choice. It's been said that you know the only people that don't have a choice with, with vaccines are babies because usually they, their parents take the decision for them or otherwise governments take the decision to ensure that they receive a vaccine. But everybody else has a choice to get or receive a vaccine. Even if a physician you know, uh, presents you with a prescription, you have a choice to go and get that filled, be it at the pharmacy or in the physician's office, uh, depending on the country that you're in in the world. So individual choice for the vaccines is really a very, very important factor, which makes it a very different aspect to, to therapeutics. 
And what is also important, and the reason why the individual choice is so important in this, because we need to achieve herd immunity in order for a society, in order for a population to be protected from a disease, we need to achieve a herd immunity, meaning that about 70 or 80% of the population needs to get vaccinated. Now, let's just think about that for the moment. We've got COVID-19 ravaging the world. It's no viral infection has spread as rapidly as COVID-19. So in order to achieve herd immunity on this planet for all of us, we need to try and vaccinate 80% of the 7 billion people on this planet. That is a huge task. That's a huge challenge because even if the high income countries or the Western countries or the United States, even if we achieve a high coverage rate and the government is so committed to wanting to ensure that every United States citizen achieves a vaccine or gets vaccinated by the middle of this year, even if the United States is able to achieve that, we will still have many countries or many populations around the world that will only be receiving their vaccines at the end of this year or maybe into 2022. And while we have unprotected populations, it means that this virus can continue to, to run rampant because the human host is a fantastic host for the virus. And the virus will continue to mutate, continue to morph, and will continue to have variants moving forward. So the challenge is huge, and I wish personally, while I may work for one company, I wish all vaccine manufacturers will be successful because we will need lots and lots of vaccines to help to protect the populations around the world, societies, and help us to get back to some kind of normality. That is a heady challenge indeed. What's your assessment of the COVID-19 vaccine rollout thus far? It has been challenging. Um, it has been challenging. I think no country in the world is satisfied with um, the rollout of the, of the vaccines. I know even for a small company like Moderna, and we are a small company, we're a company of 1,300 employees. We are frustrated because we wish that could, we could do more. But one has to remember just how quickly things have evolved. When the COVID-2 virus sequence was published on the internet at the beginning of January of 2020, Moderna was able to develop a vaccine in 40 days, 42 days. The first subject in the phase one study in collaboration with the NIH under Tony, under, under Tony Fauci's leadership was dosed 62 days. In six months, we achieved phase three enrollment. In under one year, we achieved a regulatory approval or regulatory authorization, excuse me, of the vaccine. That has never been done before. So it has been incredibly fast but supply and building of capacity um, has taken longer than any manufacturer has wished. And the lead times are long because, you know, with vaccines, you need to build all of the capacity in advance in order to ensure that the doses are there when governments want them and when they want to deploy them. And this virus comes again, as, as you know, has spread so very, very rapidly. Nobody could have anticipated that we would have had such human impact so rapidly in so many countries around the world in the time frame that it occurred. So we also, as I mentioned earlier, we now have 100, over 100 companies trying to manufacture vaccines. The number of raw material suppliers 
have not exponentially inc increased to that degree. So you still have the same number of companies making raw materials. We have shortages of glass for vials. We have shortages of rubber stoppers for syringes. We've got shortages of so many raw materials because everybody's competing for the same pool of raw, raw materials. And this has made challenges in terms of manufacturing. But as you know, you know, purchasing vaccines or making vaccines available is one thing. You could have all the vaccines sitting in a CDC warehouse, but that's not what this is all about. It's about vaccines and arms. And the only way we can protect society, protect populations, ensure that the vaccine gets into the arms of people. And um, I think the rollout um, around the world, not only in the United States, in all countries around the world, they have been, it's been challenging to mobilize, motivate, incentivize, in some cases, people to want to get vaccinated. And so, and that is one of the big challenges, and it comes back to what I was saying a little bit earlier about individual choice, because unfortunately we've got some people um, who believe and, and many others who don't believe. And, um, and so it's linked to how do we improve awareness? How do we improve education and knowledge? How do we, how do we educate all people throughout the, the, the vaccine ecosystem? to be informed and um, so that we can create confidence um, throughout the, the ecosystem that it helps to achieve high vaccination coverage rates. So it's, it's a lot of work in progress. I think particularly over the last couple of weeks, we've seen you know, a huge improvement in rollout of vaccines, number of people getting vaccinated, but we've still got a way to go, Mark. Mm -hmm. And speaking of education and knowledge, you know, Moderna has a communications uh, program for you know, its, its vaccine, um, which I, I think has been, you know, uh, rolled out for, for a while now. Can you tell me how that's doing? And also wanted to ask you about variants. You know, we, we've, we, we know there's some variants from the UK, South Africa and Brazil. And I heard uh, Moderna's chief medical officer, Dr. Talzak, say that your shot maintains its protection in the face of these new variants, but you know, just wondering if, if you've addressed that in, in your in your messaging. You know, have you have you adapted your communications plan at all since since you rolled it out? Let me take both of those questions. First question concerning communication, and then we can come back to the variants. I think firstly, in terms of communication, um, one has to remember that right now we are operating under an emergency use authorization in the United States. So, um, in terms of what we can say, is very very much defined by, excuse me, a very limited label um, that we have been authorized, authorized to use um, by, the, uh, by the FDA. And so what we ensure is we ensure that we can provide factual information concerning the vaccine um, that can help inform healthcare professionals um, to ensure that the vaccine is used appropriately and in, 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 in accordance to, to that authorization. We have deployed um, medical information, um, a, a customer care center. We've also used medical information, uh, deployed medical information through partners that we have in the United States, like Ashfield or Icuvia, who are helping to respond and helping to monitor adverse events and ensure that um, stakeholders through the, the vaccine ecosystem are well informed about how to use the vaccine. We have to remember that today we have two mRNA vaccines being deployed. While they are both mRNA vaccines, they are different. They have different storage conditions. 
Um, and um, the Moderna vaccine is stored at minus 20 degrees centigrade um, and at the vaccination center can be stored at minus two to eight degrees centigrade. That's very different compared to the other mRNA vaccine that's out there. So it's really important that um, you know, people who are responsible for cold, cold chain and the supply chain and distribution, and even at the point of vaccination, are, are, um, are very diligent um, in, in terms of how they, they take care of the vaccine to, to minimize waste. Um, you know, vaccine is, is a really precious commodity at the moment, so we really want to ensure that the vaccines are optimized and stored, stored correctly. Um, we are also working in partnership uh, and we have a number of discussions at the moment with, with various partners to also help improve awareness and education. One of the partners I can share with you is Uber. So Uber um, is, is helping to provide um, rides to people who have difficulty in gaining access to a healthcare facility to get there to reach uh, to achieve their vaccination, particularly the elderly population or or people who uh, maybe um, um, have a, a very, a certain conditions where which does not provide them ease of, of, of mobility or, or ease of transport. So, in partnership with Uber, we are helping to provide access, but we also using them as a way of helping to improve awareness and education, particularly in some of the, the um, marginalized populations, poor um, um, minority populations where vaccine hesitancy and vaccine confidence may actually be far higher than in other um, population settings. So it's, it's gonna take a village, it's gonna take a community to, to really working together to, to once again achieve coverage rates throughout all populations, all segments of society need to get vaccinated. And, and Moderna, is, as I said, is only one, it's only got one piece of the puzzle. And we hope to continue expanding um, uh, partnerships with, with other companies who can help improve awareness and education to society. So that's one point. Coming back to your point concerning variants. So uh, Moderna's philosophy is to follow the science. Um, and it speaks a lot to the flexibility, the adaptability of the platform, the scientific platform. As I mentioned very, very briefly, we were able to vac you know, develop a vaccine in 42 days, which was unheard of. Now, as this virus continues to, um, to mutate, our mission as a company is to stay relevant and to follow that science. We know from the data that's already been presented, uh, and this is public information, that um, the current vaccine, the current Moderna COVID-19 vaccine or mRNA-1273, continues to produce high levels of neutralizing antibodies against the, the UK strain, as well as the South African strain. The level of antibodies uh, against the, the uh, South African strain are reduced we do not understand the clinical significance of that reduction. We need to follow that up. We need to do clinical studies in order to really understand um, does a, a reduction in neutralizing antibodies have a clinical significance? And only time is going to tell for us to answer that question. In addition to that, Moderna is also on record in, um, in that it plans to develop strain-specific vaccines or boosters that could um, help to protect uh, populations if these strains really uh, become the predominant strain 
um, responsible for um, COVID-19 disease moving forward. So, you know, watch this space. Still lots to, lots to, um, to lots going to happen over the next coming months um, as we um, gather more data around the variants and as we, uh, as our research and development program continues to make progress. Thank you for those for those remarks. Also wanted to just uh, move on to another question here. You know, the, the vaccine, as we know, is currently authorized for use in, in those 18 and older. And, and the first wave of, of vaccines priority wise was really for the elderly um, and people with risk factors. But as we know, the CDC continues to evolve that and are lowering the age for, for access. Um, do you think that, you know, tactics like that, widening priority groups now and perhaps um, not holding second doses for those people who have received the first dose, but allowing more people to get the first dose is a good idea? You know, can, can tactics like that really improve the number of people to get the vaccine? Is, is that wise in the, in the long run? I think, Mark, we've got to follow the science. Right. I think more than ever, we've got to follow the science and let the data help to show us the right way. Um, there is no doubt that um, the elderly population, people with underlying diseases, have been the hardest hit through this um, COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, in watching the president last night um, draw attention to the, you know, 500,000 people that have died in the United States because of this disease was a sobering moment for me. Um, and I think that the majority of those people by far are, have been the elderly populations. And so I think, you know, whatever works in the beginning to try and protect the healthcare workers, first lines of, of response, to try and protect as many of the vulnerable populations in society, that has to have been the focus, particularly while there was so little vaccine available in the beginning. It's improving. And so therefore, um, and you, you made reference to the distribution of doses by Pfizer and Moderna at the beginning of the program. So now that we have got greater certainty, greater reliability in the supply chain, in the distribution of doses, I think it's absolutely appropriate to start relaxing some of those rules, allowing broader access um, you know, we've seen from countries, other countries, small countries, but a small country like Israel, they have had a huge success with their vaccination program and trying to vaccinate as many people in society as possible. And they've started to see the reduction um, in, in spread of disease as, as well as um, reduction in, um, in, in deaths, mortality as a result of, of COVID-19. So we know that broad vaccination coverage, and we've learned this from other vaccines as well, has a dramatic impact on population health. Um, and so I, I, I support, I believe that at the end of the day, um, the, the Biden administration has the right approach, um, which is to try and accelerate uh, deployment of vaccines as fast as possible. Um, and, but also at the same time, working closely with industry because we can't get ahead of ourselves. Um, there is, you know, there's enough frustration out there at the moment with people wanting to get vaccinated. You know, it's, it's always a sobering moment when I see people standing outside in the freezing cold, waiting to get a vaccine, arriving at the door and then saying, sorry, we've run out, right? Absolutely. So I think it's a sad day when that happens every day. Um, so I think we've got to work together in partnership to try and um, get as many people vaccinated as possible, as fast as possible.
Yeah, that's a good segue to my next question in, in terms of if and when we do, you know, re relax those restrictions a bit. There's always a danger of, uh, you know, people jumping ahead um, and, yeah. and people getting it who ne don't necessarily qualify. How should we balance expediency, you know, offering the shot to more people right away with equity, avoiding a situation where those with money and connections can jump ahead of those who need it most? I, I think here again, um, we need to follow the data. We need to follow the science. Um Moderna, um, in its um, clinical development program, actually slowed down the program. It slowed down the clinical trial in order to ensure that we achieved two things. We wanted to ensure that there was a high percentage of the population who represented those people who were hardest hit by the disease, namely the elderly. And we achieved approximately 25% of the subjects enrolled in our study were people greater than 65 years of age, but also people with um, underlying diseases, risk factors. In addition to that, we also slowed down the, the enrollment of the study to particularly focus on minority populations, African-American community, as well as the Hispanic community, because... Um, and this is well known, and there's a lot of history here when it comes to vaccines and overall that, you know, some of these minority populations um, are, have higher hesitancy or lack of confidence in vaccination. And so Moderna really wanted to in increase the enrollment in this population to show the benefit. Um, and so, um, so I think that we have to um, look at how do we improve access across all um, populations representative of of the United States. It's the only way we're gonna we're gonna stop this the, the, uh, the spread. It's the only way we are going to be able to get the economy back on track. It's the only way that we're going to be able to get our lives back on track. Absolutely, but you know, as we know, one of the hurdles of the rollout is the vaccine hesitancy. You know, in the case of African Americans, this of course stems from a historic distrust of medical testing and vaccinations due to discriminatory medical treatment. What can you say to allay fears and concerns regarding the vaccine for the African-American community? And what efforts is, is Moderna making to provide more information to communities of color? I've drawn a little bit of, upon my experience in HIV on this. What, some of the success with HIV were community programs, community outreach programs, having, um, you know, thanks to um, community activism, at the grassroots level, we were able to achieve, um, you know, high um, uh, antiviral coverage rates in some of those populations. Learning from that, we have thought about deploying and are in the process of speaking to faith-based organizations, barbershops, hair salons, where some of the best conversations actually happen around health and and society, right? And we we we're working with some of these groups in order to improve education, knowledge, awareness, because I think that if you can work at those levels, you can improve confidence, um, and um, and try and put to rest some of the skepticism that is out there. Data. Uh, is, you know, knowledge and, and, and once again, coming back to the science again, I think that by using and relying on the science and using advocates at the community level, we can help to communicate and, um, and, and mobilize the populations um, 
across the broad spectrum that we need moving forward. But it's mm -hmm. not easy. It's not. It's but but it's going to take. It's going to. And I don't mean to sound cliche. It's going to take a village working together to to achieve this. Are there specific programs or initiatives that, that you're developing to increase immunizations among people of color? You know, when you talk about barbershops and community organizations and, and faith-based groups, are there specific initiatives that you're that are kind of ongoing right now? Yes, they are. Okay. Okay. Great. Moving on here, the, the Moderna vaccine as well as the Pfizer vaccine have to be administered in two doses, three weeks apart for Pfizer, and I believe four weeks for Moderna. What efforts are being done to help people remember that second shot? You know, what measures are put in place to remind people, or is that the responsibility of the HCP? Oh, it's a great question. It's something that concerns me a lot because right now it's quite controlled, whereby at least the CDC is playing a very, very important role. Um, and I think whoever's getting vaccinated is receiving a card. Um, you know, I'm showing my age, but I remember many, many years ago when I traveled, I had that little yellow card, right, <laughs> that, that kept track of your vaccination, right? But today, the beauty about it is we've got technology, and it's exciting to see um, companies develop different apps um, that can help create, you know, vaccination wallets, digital wallets, um, that record when did you receive your vaccine, which vaccine did you recall, uh, did you receive, and help to prom prompt you for a reminder. Part of our collaboration with Uber, again, is also because the Uber app is a great app for not only recording your ride, but also helping you remind you of your return ride, if that's what you need. And so we've had discussions with Uber about how to use their technology to help people remind them about, hey, listen, you, you remember that first ride? Now I'd remember to get your next ride, go back to that, get your vaccine. So, um, and I think particularly post-pandemic, um, when the, um, you know, the market opens up to allow pharmacy to play a role, you know, the pharmacy chains have great data and great technology where they can push messages via the via via a cell phone or they have recall services um, that they can provide calling people up and reminding them so so i think that it's it's not everybody play, needs to play a role i don't think it should be left up to the individual because also we we may have certain populations where people get distracted people are busy they forget and we need to ensure that we've we've got services in place to help remind remind them about their vaccine, but also remind them to get the same vaccine. And um, and once again, you know, the one of the things that that we we are we are concerned about, focused on, is is to help ensure to help to allay confusion, avoid confusion. Uh, you know, it doesn't help that you've got two mRNA vaccines out there, but very very different again. And so somebody might say, oh, I got the mRNA vaccine. Well, which one? I'm oh, sorry, I don't remember. Um, so we need to, working with our partners, with, us, with stakeholders across the ecosystem, we need to um, develop, um, use technology to remind people to get the same vaccine that they got. That their second dose is the same vaccine as that first dose.
that is now that you mentioned it one constant that that i do when i talk to people oh did you get the vaccine you know have yeah i got the moderna or i got the pfizer it seems to be something that people do remember but as you point out there are different uh you know time lags that yes. are that are involved you know between those two shots so using a consumer facing app makes a, a ton of sense yeah and i and i think and i think mark and i know that um you know people become very concerned about privacy and rightfully so but you can imagine, you know, moving forward, that people may want to know: Did you have you have you received a vaccine? You know, and um, I don't know whether in the United States we'll get to a stage of, you know, to to get back into a restaurant or to get back on an airplane or whatever. You need to show that you've been vaccinated. But but um, I know in some other countries they are using technology to reassure people that the community that they are back with have all been vaccinated um, because there's a certain reassurance that comes with that. So it was going to be interesting to see whether across the United States people agree to to share whether they are vaccinated or not. It's going to be an interesting thing to play out. And, you know, you know another thing that's kind of probably a few months away is that doctors say that eventually COVID vaccination will be similar to flu vaccination with recommendations for different subgroups, such as people over 65 and so forth. Um, and so, you know, patients may actually one day be able to choose which, which vaccine they get. Absolutely. I think particularly coming back to the question you asked me earlier about variants, you know, if, if this market evolves into something like the flu market, you could imagine that certain people, people at risk, people with underlying disease may choose to get a top up, if I could use that expression, right? One of the things that Moderna is thinking about, once again, coming back to the technology in your, one of your questions is, you know, so how do, we, how do we keep the vaccine updated? So just to give you, you know, just to entertain you, you know, creatively for a moment, you know, just like we receive our, our Apple download update or our Microsoft Apple, you know, our Microsoft download update, you know, to our phone or our computer. You know, can you imagine if we can say, listen, we will continue to keep you updated. We'll continue to keep your vaccination updated with the latest variant or whatever, right? And so um, I'm not a scientist. So <laughs> I'm a crazy commercial guy, right? So, <laughs> but I, but I think that, I think that there's, you know, if COVID-19 is going to spread remain around and everything that we are seeing is that this is not over in, in the short run right this is going to be around for a while um and so there could be people governments society that may very much want to have the latest vaccine that covers the most current strain of this virus because they want to be protected and so we are thinking about how do we stay relevant uh, in order to help those people and help those populations. That would be one software update that I would definitely uh, <laughs> yes to for sure. Um, just a couple more questions uh, here, Patrick, and we'll let you go. You know, side effects and safety have been cited as one source of fear among those who are hesitant to vaccinate. Yes. Although the two approved shots have demonstrated they're safe and well tolerated, there have been some isolated reports of reactions. How should vaccine makers manage that community concern? With seriousness, with responsibility, um, and um, with diligence. The reason why I say that, you know, and this is, uh, I didn't mention that in the beginning when you asked me the question about vaccines, but, you know, it has been said that with vaccines, you know, one of the most important premises is do no harm because we are dealing with healthy people, not sick people. And so as important as vaccine efficacy is, you can make an argument to say that 
vac vaccine tolerability and safety is even more important. So, um, you know, at Moderna, we take monitoring of adverse events incredibly seriously. And um, as we've deployed the vaccine, we've ensured with our partner um, that we've got very robust adverse event monitoring in place, which rolls up to the CDC um, uh, as, as, as our overall monitoring. But in every country where we deploy, and we're only deploying the vaccine with governments around the world, we are not selling into the private sector. We, we're working with governments around the world because at the end of the day, governments do the best job in protecting their populations. And as part of our discussions with governments, we always ask, well, how are we going to monitor adverse events? Fortunately, um, what we saw in the clinical study, in the 30,000 subject study, where we did see adverse events, but typical flu vaccine-like events. There's some pain on injection, there's some redness, there's some swelling, um, there is some fever, but it's all been transient, 24, 48 hours, um, and they resolve. Um, and um, so we, you know, touch wood, there's not been anything severe that we've noticed uh, to date, but we continue to, to follow this up um, and ensure that we've got the right mechanisms in place to monitor the, the safety and tolerability of the vaccine for the long term. Talking about governments being, uh, you know, well positioned to inoculate their populations. You know, one last question I had for you, Patrick, was: Do you think that you know a mass vaccination implementation program should be created? You know, and if, if there was a mass vaccination implementation, you know, what are some of the crucial elements? You know, how would you design something like that? When you say mass vaccination, Mark, what do you what do you mean exactly? What's um... yeah? I mean, um, you know, the way I understand it is kind of following the influenza implementation program. So I think that once again, in order to achieve a herd immunity of 70-80% of the population, which is what the scientists declare we're going to need to achieve, the only way that one can really achieve that is through a mass vaccination kind of program. Um, and, 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 and once again, we need all of the stakeholders across the ecosystem. And when I use the word ecosystem, I mean, it's federal level, state level, local level, um, healthcare professionals, the broad spectrum of healthcare professionals, be they doctors, nurses, pharmacists, society, schools, right? Um, just look at how, you know, towns and cities have come together advocating for vaccines and, you know, gymnasiums have been converted or football stadiums have been converted for the greater good of society. And we would not be achieving um, in the time um, that we are achieving it, I believe, if we were just allowing and using traditional healthcare systems, be it a physician office, or a hospital, you know, we could in the, in the current conditions where the hospitals have been so overwhelmed by COVID, hospital staff have been so stretched that they would not be able to just vaccinate people through a, a hospital channel. Primary care is not set up for uh, mass vaccination. So I think that you know these are these are crazy times that we're in. Uh, these are exceptional times, and exceptional times require exceptional methods. And mass vaccination is not a routine. It's not something that we do every day. But under these exceptional circumstances, um, it's absolutely, in my mind, it's absolutely required. And hopefully, this will be recorded, 
and that we'll learn from this and hopefully hope for firstly hopefully we'll never deal with this again but in the future you know when when people look back at the year 2020 or year 2020 21 the records will speak about the lessons learned and that the next generation god forbid that happens again but that um we'll be able to do it better the next time around okay okay well we're just about out of time um i want to thank you for a fascinating interview thank you so much patrick you're most welcome mark it's been a privilege and a pleasure thank you for your time and i also want to thank uh, gail hurd who helped make the introduction to patrick so uh, shout out to gail and um, this is part of our continuing efforts to bring greater attention to the need for you know increase in diversity uh, in everything from clinical trials uh, to the vaccination effort to you know multicultural marketing when women of color and pharma helps us out there um, you know on, on that front so we're, we're grateful to them uh, and they have a new effort coming out as well called this is pharma uh, where they're going to be training uh, people in pharma marketing and commercialization experts in how to better convey um, the uh, science and drug development process uh, in their marketing and to the general public. So I think we'll be hearing more about that in coming weeks. If you like this conversation as much as I did, please uh, give this episode a like. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Uh, Spotify or wherever you get your uh, your audio programming, um, and that'll do it for the uh, MMM podcast. You know, for Patrick Bergstedt, uh, this has been Marcus Goetz signing off. We'll see you next time. Take care, everybody. <laughs>